0: The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. Hello, and my name is Yasmin Sheikh, and I am one of the new hosts on the Hearing podcast. I'm really excited to be with you today. Some of you may know me; some of you haven't got a clue who I am. So, who am I? I'm a lawyer. Um, I have a training consultancy called Diverse Matters. I do a lot of work with the Law Society. And I'm really excited for us to get to know each other on this podcast as we meet some really fascinating guests who are connected with the law or they're lawyers or they've got an interesting story to tell. So let's get started.
1: The hearing. The notion that somehow who I was at nine has been betrayed by who I am at 35 is the kind of poisonous thinking that I believe doesn't allow you to fulfill your full potential in your own lifetime because of the way in which people perceive you and decide your destiny for you.
0: So this week we are joined by Hashi Muhammad, my first guest on this podcast. Who is he? He's a barrister and he's a broadcaster and he came to the UK as a young child refugee without his parents when he was just nine years old. So he's got a fascinating story. Now today he's an author and he reflects on social mobility, inequality and deprivation in his debut book, People Like Us, what it takes to make it in modern Britain. It was a pleasure to meet Hashi. He's one of those individuals you don't really forget, not just because of his story, but actually how truthful he is about the reality of how difficult It is to get into the legal profession when you come from a different background, a non-traditional background. And he's really honest about that. His story is exceptional and we examine why it's exceptional and actually what it took for him to make it in modern Britain. And it hasn't been easy. And his book is trying to shine a light on what those difficulties are, but offering some fantastic advice to people who are passionate about this subject, about social mobility and offer advice to those people, perhaps in similar circumstances to himself, about how you get on and how you get up in this legal profession. The Hearing. Welcome to The Hearing podcast, Hashi. It's fantastic to have you here. Um, I wanted to dive straight in um, into your book, uh, People Like Us. I found it a fascinating read, and I know a lot of Organisations and law firms will be really interested in some of the issues you've talked about. I wanted to start with, um, firstly, how you came to Britain age nine as a an unaccompanied child refugee. Could you just just tell us the circumstances which led you to coming to Britain?
1: Yes, um, and thank you for having me, Yasmin. I'm I'm very um, excited to tell you a little bit more about the book. Um, uh, to To you and of course the legal community that listens to this uh, particular podcast. Um, I came in 1993 as a a young unaccompanied uh, child refugee following the collapse of the Somali state in the early 1990s. We were growing up in Kenya at the time uh, with both our parents who had emigrated from Somalia to Kenya in the early 80s. And we were living in a very sort of uh, poor uh, area of Nairobi, the capital of Kenya. And around 91, 92, when the war broke out, a lot of people fled uh, Somalia and sought asylum wherever they could find them, many of whom went to the neighboring countries like Ethiopia and Kenya. Uh, My parents who were settled in Kenya, more or less, started receiving a lot of um, family and extended relatives uh, from Somalia at the time and a lot of them were only really using Kenya as a stopgap on their way to um, North America to Europe and other places where they were seeking asylum and we were not really part of that cohort of people who were doing that Uh, And we had every intention of staying in Kenya and trying to build a story and life for ourselves there. But in 1993, amid this chaos, uh, my father had died uh, in Kenya uh, because of a car accident. Mm. And that meant that basically, you know, our breadwinner, uh, our sole breadwinner, the person who was the sort of uh, patriarch and the pillar of of the family and the community had gone. And therefore there was a choice to be made as to whether or not we stayed uh, in Kenya to try and make a life for ourselves, bearing in mind that my mother, who's never formally educated, had 12 children from her first and second marriage, or would we follow this wave of people that were trying to find a new life elsewhere? And that was a choice that was obviously made for us as children, and some of my siblings ended up in Canada, and some of them ended up in America. We ended up here in, in the UK. Yeah. Uh, it was just over twenty six, twenty seven years ago.
0: Gosh, what a journey! And um, your book is divided into really eight chapters, and you touch on some really important issues. Um, I wanted to talk about race and class first of all, because in your book you've woven in some really hard hitting statistics, but with that you've you've told your story and shared. Um, what you think about these statistics, and, and what what you think some of the solutions are to combating social mobility? Um, and a statistic that that came out stood out for me was, um, you know, a white British student is still sixteen percent more likely to be accepted to the elite Russell Group universities than a black African student with the same grades. And I just wanted to know, Ashley, what what you think accounts for that? What are some of the reasons behind that? Why is there that gap still?
1: Well, I think it's uh, uh, it's very hard to have a clear cut reason as to why that gap exists, but we have some indicators and some idea of what that gap is made up of for a variety of reasons. So we know, for example, that there is a great deal of uh, differences in the circumstances that people grow up in in this country. And it's no sort of secret or controversial that uh, a lot of people from minority backgrounds, particularly black Africans and, uh, and uh, you know, particularly also, again, uh, Pakistani and Bangladeshi communities are growing up in, in quite stark uh, set of circumstances. But the specific stat that you refer to there in relation to the 16% more likely to get into Russell Group universities, even though they have the same grades, is down to a whole host of reasons that we can't really prove, but we have some idea of. One of them might be just pure and utter uh, prejudice, whatever that might look like. It could be because of people's names, because of the neighborhoods that they grew up in, because of the fact that there is a cultural mindset that allows some people to succeed more than others. There is also the, 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 the simple fact that there are people who benefit from their cultural and social capital. Uh-huh. So despite you having the same grades and the same qualifications on paper, you are being given an unfair advantage in this society based on how you speak the people that you mix with what kind of networks that you have and the kind of cultural capital that your parents have been able to build for you that allows you to succeed beyond just a grades and c grades mm. so that is a you know a clear indicator of how um, you know the, the class system or the advantages that some people have more than others it is fundamentally maintained in a country like this.
0: Mm. I mean, you you described basically me practically in the book. I mean, I'm a lawyer. I was privately educated. My dad was a lawyer. He he set me up on. Uh, I had work experience in in chambers, uh, in law firms. And to be honest, if I didn't become a lawyer, yes, it required hard work and discipline on my part. However, I. I I would worry if I didn't become a lawyer because everything, the ducks were in a row. So, I mean, we can't get away from that other statistic that you mentioned in the book that, you know, private schools educate 7% of the total school children population in England. But when we look at the legal profession, they form 74% of high court judges, um, 51% of solicitors and journalists. So we can't ignore the fact that, as you say, uh, social capital as well and, and this concept of confidence I'm really interested in, in confidence you mentioned that in the book quite a lot what can you just expand on that what, what is the confidence that people have if they haven't come from non-traditional backgrounds that gives them an advantage you think?
1: Yes I think I think confidence is something that comes up regularly and a lot of people Um, attach a great deal of cachet and currency to it. Uh, And and it's a very sort of nebulous term, right? Nobody can really define it. Nobody can really put a finger on it. People sort of say, I know it when I see it. Mm. Uh, This idea that you carry with yourself uh, a sort of ease, uh, a natural ease to be able to mix and mingle in different communities, different environments, different contexts. But actually, at at its heart, in the final analysis, confidence is really contextual. Confidence is really the idea that you first and foremost understand your context for what it is. The society in which you are growing up in for what it is. The, 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 the warts and all idea that when you are born, you're not born into a neutral environment that treats you fairly all the time, but rather an environment that carries a great deal of baggage, a lot of history, a lot of prejudices, a lot of good things, but also a lot of negative things. So that part of that kind of understanding is that ability to be able to understand your context properly. Once you do, that means that the world around you is not overwhelming you and your confidence is somewhat bolstered in that sort of uh, sweet spot, if I can put it that way. But then the second part of that confidence is then the ability to fundamentally not be afraid about what you don't know. And what I mean by that is that once you have gone over that hurdle of understanding your context properly, you'll get into a realm in which you finally confront a world where there is a lot that is beyond you and there's a lot that you just simply do not know and that you simply do not control. And so it is critical that in order to then further cement your confidence in that context, that you come to terms with and you be at peace with as well at the idea that you just simply don't know a great deal you won't know everything, and that you can't control everything. So just concentrate your efforts and concentrate your might, abilities, and power, and and focus on that which you can control. Mm. And, I, and I, be, I fundamentally believe that if you are somebody who's not from a very privileged background, coming to terms with that gives you that great deal of confidence to then attack what you can control and then hope to succeed.
0: Yeah. What I love is the way you, because you do a lot of mentoring for young people, particularly from people people who've, who've come from different backgrounds. Um, and I love the way you reframe confidence, as in, you, you say in your book, it's all about how you react, as in, there are so many things in our lives that we can't control, you know, whether you're disabled, uh, you have ill health, uh, whether you come from a particular background, these are things we can't necessarily control but what we can control is the way we react to situations and what really came out at me is, is about reframing that so that that confidence comes from a resilience that you have that you have gone through these challenges and actually you say about those that background rather than being a hindrance it can actually be a source from which you draw strength and I, and I think there was a turning point in your life Hashi where I think you went back to um, Kenya after, I think, 10 years and and, and met your cousins and and, and relatives there. And when you came back from that trip, you said you had kind of a light bulb moment that you realized the worst thing that had happened to you was your father dying at that very young age, at the age of nine. And you suddenly thought, if I can get through that, I've got resilience, I've got tenacity. And it's almost as if you had nothing to lose. Is is that a fair reflection? Was that that a catalyst moment for you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that was definitely a big uh, catalyst moment for me because that was yet another example of when you get over that hurdle of understanding your context. How did I end up in a foreign country, not speaking a word of English? without either of my parents for the first four years and having had to just bury my father when I was a child. And that context is something that you really have to grapple with and get your mind around and confront and not be afraid to confront it. And so that was a big big part of it. But then you have to turn that on its head. You have to be able to turn a negative like that into a positive. And that's what happened for me when I, when you're sort of explaining uh, how much of a light bulb moment it was for me. That was what was happening for me because that's when I thought, okay, if that was the worst thing that could happen to me as a child, then surely what comes after this is pure strength because I've been able to survive that. Surely nothing gets worse beyond this mm. and I think that 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 realization was also a really big moment for me an epiphany if you like that then cut catapulted me into wanting more doing more and getting to where I am today
0: yeah and that leads nicely to to your chapter where you talk about imagination and this concept of a fixed and a growth mindset could you firstly explain what that means, fixed and growth mindset, and how, how did that help you gain the imagination to, to lead to becoming a barrister?
1: Yeah, so the, the, the fixed and the and the, uh, uh, and the sort of growth mindset ideas are not mine and they're not new in the sense that there was a professor Carol Dweck who developed the idea, but it's a very simple idea which simply says, if you, do you see your life? as a sort of fixed point in which you get to and you've learned everything that you can learn and that's it and you've got to stick with your ways. Or do you have the kind of growth mindset that says, I'm going to learn something new, I'm going to improve constantly, I'm going to grow continuously and life is going to be one long, Journey of self discovery and momentum. And that is something that I really did subscribe to before I came across Carol Dweck's ideas after that trip to Kenya, because I got to a point where I thought to myself, I may not have had the best privileges in life and I may not have had the best start to life, but actually, this is a marathon, not a sprint, but actually, this is a, the the an opportunity to really fundamentally change my life now and focus on that and have the discipline to see it through hmm. and that, that imagination comes from the ability to imagine for yourself a future uh, a, a career a comfort or whatever you're searching for that is nothing like you've never seen before nothing that you have ever tasted, ever touched, ever experienced. And then having the wherewithal to focus on that, to drive towards that and achieve it. And that for me came in various stages. Once when I was homeless, another time when I finally got into university. And then of course, through the help of family and various mentors and people who believed in me along the way. And I set in that chapter
2: mm,
0: mm. yeah you speak a lot about mentoring which i'm really interested in because a lot of organizations are now taking on mentoring um, and also reverse mentoring and it's been really beneficial uh, both ways um in your view what 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 makes a good mentor um it,
1: a mentor really I, At the end of the day, is an individual who is going to help another individual see, find, and know things that they do not at that precise moment know. The chapter on mentoring in the book is aptly titled Filling in the Blanks. Mm. And that's for a reason. I've titled it Filling in the Blanks because I think that's what a mentor does. They help somebody with gaps in their knowledge, experience and life fill in whatever gaps they have with a view to potentially transforming their lives in ways they have never imagined. And so the critical role of a mentor is not to necessarily help a mentee fundamentally change their lives based on or or highly driven by that mentor's imagination, but rather being that kind of pillar, that kind of pit stop that allows that individual to be able to find the right route, to look at the map again, to figure out which direction for themselves, fully armed with the knowledge that they need to be able to undertake that task that they're in that they're undertaking. And the the critical role of a mentor is to be able to provide that information, help, without necessarily actually charting the course for that person, Mm. without necessarily driving that person in in a direction, without necessarily deciding that person's destiny.
2: Mm.
0: And you you give a lot of advice to mentees in the book as well. And um, I'm intrigued about... I mean, it's quite controversial in some parts what you say about they need to adapt to the system. And even though in, in organisations, they, they, big corporates, they talk about this whole concept of bringing your whole self to work. And, you know, how do you balance that so that you, the mentee keeps part of their identity, but also adapting to the system without compromising too much of themselves?
1: I think that in order to properly answer that question, we have to unpick the kind of underlying assumptions that are there. There is the first fundamental flawed assumption in my judgment, no offence to you, and I really like you, (laughs) that somehow an individual's identity or who they are is some sort of fixed thing that is there for once and for all. I don't believe that and I'll come back to that in a moment. Mm. The second assumption that I also think is wrong is this idea that somehow because you are adapting to your set of circumstances and you are evolving as a human being to get on, that somehow that necessarily follows that you're not being yourself. Let's take the first stage uh, uh, first. As a human being, we are developing constantly. I am not that same child who turned up here as a nine-year-old not speaking a word of English, or the 15-year-old who could barely pass GCSE English to the 30-year-old who's presenting on BBC Radio uh, Radio 4, or the 35-year-old who has published a book on his life story to date. Mm. Each stage that I have just mentioned, I am a different human being, growing, learning, evolving. The notion that somehow who I was at nine has been betrayed by who I am at 35 is the kind of poisonous thinking that I believe keeps people down. And it doesn't allow you to fulfill your full potential in your own lifetime because of the way in which people perceive you. And decide your destiny for you. That, that's the first half. Yeah. The second half then is about then the question of by adapting to your set of circumstances and 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 flowing and learning about the system and then uh, and then adjusting accordingly that you're betraying who you are. Well, when you were born in squalor conditions or in very poor circumstances, did you have control over that? it is highly unlikely that you had any control over that. And then when you have an opportunity to fundamentally change your life by either adapting or getting with the program or understanding your context and therefore adjusting, the idea that somehow you are wedded to a world of thinking, a time when something happened to you that you had no control over rather than focusing on what you do have control over and changing your life's destiny, the idea that 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 then amounts to some sort of betrayal is again, another example of the power structures that exist that ensure that people stay where they are, never move, never grow, never mature, and never fulfill their full potential. And that is another reason why we need to snap out of this if we are going to make progress on this issue.
0: Yeah, and it links very much to what you talk about in the book about language and, and code switching. So I, we all code switch to some extent, you know, the way I talk at work may be very different to how I talk to my friends in the pub, or to my parents, or to my husband, or we're always code switching, but it's knowing, I guess, what I get from your book is, is, is telling young kids you know, what language is appropriate in which kind of context. And, and you tell a funny story about David Lammy, the MP, saying to a group of, I think, sixth formers uh, in London, you know, saying in it or is it at the end of the sentence is not going to get you a job. So uh, pull your trousers up as well and learn to speak in a way that you're adapting to the system. And perhaps when you when people with diverse backgrounds are uh, in leadership positions or have some sort of influence, maybe you can change the system then. But until then, you've got to play the game. Um, is, is, is that something you agree with?
1: Absolutely. You, it is a game and it's being played by those who have the best equipment, the best understanding, the best training, and the best opportunities to manipulate the system for their gains. Irrespective of their raw talent, irrespective of what exams they have passed, irrespective of of, of the qualifications that they carry. And so for me, language, the ability to articulate what you want, the ability to ask for what you need, and crucially, the ability to get the system to respond to your opportunities and your abilities to want to make a different life for yourself is another critical part of the human progress, a critical part of that small space over which you have personal control that you must exploit and not allow society's sort of prefabricated ideas about who you are and how you should speak to allow that to, to kind of cripple your thoughts.
0: Yeah. And you, you say you, you never had any voice coaching. And you, you you say in the book that your accent, inevitably, as all our accents do, change over time during different chapters in your life. And you didn't have any voice coaching, training, elocution lessons. um, And the accent continues to change, you know, depending who you are uh, speaking to and in what context. But how did you how did you know that you needed to play this game? Did you learn that by observation, that you needed to, to change the way in which you speak to kind of conform and to play the game so that you got into the, the that profession? How, how did you know that? Uh,
1: how how I knew is as much of, as a mystery to you as it is to me in the sense that you can ask the same thing about how did I know that I needed to understand my context as well as I could to be able to boost my confidence? Mm. How did I know that I needed to get certain qualifications to get on in life? How did I know that I ought to expand my horizon by seeking out the right kind of mentors that will get me to the next stage? How did I know that in order to fully uh, kind of fulfil my potential being at the bar wasn't going to be enough. That I should probably think about writing a book, broadcasting on the on the radio, and doing other things. I mean, it, it, it is hard for me to say to you that I knew because this guy told me or I read. You know, it. it, it yeah. All of these things are part of an ability, and what I think it comes down to the first is just simply the restlessness to be angry and not happy with your circumstances, and then saying, what can I actually do about this? Mm. What that then leads you to is to a more conscious life, a more conscious thinking, a more conscious ability to say, I'm not happy with what I have, I want something better. And then sooner or later in my mind, it becomes very obvious that there are certain people who communicate and verbalise ideas in a certain way, who seem to get on, and there are others who are demonised or who are mistreated or who don't get that opportunity and don't get those chances, and there are lessons there. There are clear mm. straight lines to follow. It isn't rocket science.
0: Mm. And and you talk a lot in the book about luck and the the great myth that you know just working hard. And, and, and plodding along um, and putting the graft in is, is actually not enough. But sometimes along the way, we need luck. And I love the story that you, you tell about, you know, you wanted to, you're sort of looking at journalism and you wrote to the editor of Newsnight, uh, told him a bit about your background and he gave you an opportunity and um, you're now doing stuff on the BBC, which is fantastic. Um, and he, he took a risk. You took a risk. Um, what other lucky breaks have you had in your career that you think has has helped you along the way?
1: I mean, there have been plenty of, of lucky uh, breaks, whether it's people taking risks on me, whether it's the fact that I have been healthy physically and mentally for all of my life and not have had to take some time off to be able to deal with some sort of ailment, whatever that is. Yeah. I've been very lucky at the fact that I've had uh, um, siblings who took on a huge amount of responsibility uh, for the family at a time when I was able to go off and focus on my education. I was lucky in a lot of people taking risks with me, even though on paper I might not have been the best candidate or the most likely candidate. I've been lucky in people just coming across my work in the most bizarre way and much more besides and there are lots of other ways in which I couldn't quantify the luck
2: mm. uh,
1: that I had but then it's not also to say and we must never forget that sort of f- famous saying you know uh, by a golfer who said you know the harder I worked the luckier I got yeah and so that is not to say or to ignore that you obviously need to work hard you need to push yourself you need to push those boundaries. You need to think about those things that I discussed before in relation to, um, uh, uh, um, you know, being in the right place at the right time and, and, and much more besides.
0: Mm. And it goes back to, to mentoring, I guess, advising your mentees that using their background, using their different experience to create that luck by, for example, writing a letter to... to why not write a letter to... The editor of Newsnight or uh, head of chambers to, to actually showcase your resilience and, and turning it around and using that as an example of, of your tenacity, so um, where they can gain confidence. You also um, have some really good advice for recruiters in the book. Um, a lot of recruiters out there saying, you know, we want to attract diverse talent. And uh, we care about social mobility. We want to have different people in our organisation. Why do you think that they're they're not getting the talent through? What what can recruiters actually do to get those people in the door?
1: Well, I mean, I think there are a number of problems that they currently face. First of all, it's important that we acknowledge that some significant progress has been made. It's easy to be demoralized and say that we are not doing enough to tackle the inequalities that exist in our uh, professions or just job-wise generally. It's important to, 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 to first of all acknowledge that there's a huge amount of progress being made, especially, and this is quite important, especially yeah. at the lower end of the kind of uh, scale of, of, of jobs. So. At entry level, we are seeing more and more uh, women coming in, and we're seeing more and more minorities. Now, is it enough? Is it representative? No, not yet. But it's important to acknowledge that starting point. Mm. Then there is a, a now a, 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 a few other issues that have emerged since then, namely that those who are from minority backgrounds, or from state school educated, from whatever background. Are losing out significantly when they get into their profession about six, seven years in. It turns out that a privately educated male who has had all the trappings of privilege is earning, on average, something like 16, 17% more seven, five, five to seven years into the profession. Then there is the issue of retention, because we are having problems retaining after you've recruited so well a diverse group of people, there are issues to do with retention. And then of course there are issues to do with progression because it turns out that minorities and women are overly represented at the lower rung of any particular organization and significantly underrepresented the higher up you go. Mm. So that's another thing that's emerging there. Part of the solutions I delve into in the book but I think for me, one of the big issues that you're faced with is actually the seriousness with which people are prepared to deal with this is still not where it ought to be. So many organizations expect, for example, that individuals who are there to help them understand how their systems work or to come and speak to their HR department, for example, yeah. can be done for done for free. Now, I don't expect to be the person who comes around and and you pay me for my thoughts, you just buy the book and I'm happy. I mean, I'm not sort of, you know, I'll I'll be content with that. But what I'm saying is if you're willing to put your money where your mouth is as an organization and actually have a budget to understanding what more you could do, to having a budget to be able to hold events that make people in your organization more comfortable in their own skin, understand their context better, If you have the resources, both in terms of people and money for your recruitment department to not just be manned by two HR people that can actually check their confirmation bias, to check their unconscious bias, if you don't have the resources in people, in monetary-wise, in every aspect to be able to tackle these issues, everything else is cosmetic and everything else won't be long lasting. And crucially, and finally, the gains that we are making in relation to the progress we have made at the early stages is inevitably and invariably will be lost if we don't make those moves quickly.
0: Mm -hmm. And unconscious bias. I mean, that is a hot topic, isn't it? That's discussed a lot. And um there's a lot of firms doing unconscious bias training trying to remove that bias so the assumptions we make about people because we, we're all riddled with bias we have, make shortcuts when we see people when we hear them and you know there's a lot of blind recruitment going on taking away names from cvs and even universities and schools they went to so that's making strides in, in trying to eliminate the discrimination that happens at the outset but i agree with you that actually we need to retain that talent as well because there's there's a serious drop when it comes to diverse people yes. uh, progressing to leadership um, definitely. Um, I wanted to ask you f- finally Hashi um, and there's there's so much to talk about that's the problem you you, you touched on so many important issues and um, we can't ignore the fact that we are going through a crisis at the moment COVID-19 and I wondered what your thoughts were about, you know, what's going on with COVID-19 and social mobility, um, because, you know, uh, the kids are going back to school, a lot of them today. Um, and um, actually, we hear about those, those children who are, don't have probably a computer at home and, and have missed out on a couple of months of learning. Perhaps they've got chaotic lifestyles. Um, you know, middle-class parents can afford to probably sit down and, and homeschool and give them the time and the attention, but people may be living in crowded circumstances, there may be domestic violence going on. What are, what are your thoughts about COVID-19 and social mobility?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I it's a very, it, it's very, very hard time for everyone, Yasmin, as you know, and um, Uh, it's important to also say that obviously we don't know the true impact of of what's happening at the moment, and we won't know for, for a number of years, I suspect. But the immediate thoughts that come to mind in relation to social mobility, really, are that, first of all, it's obvious that those children who are growing up in deprived communities, in crowded homes, in homes in which both parents either have to work or are not professionally trained in houses where either the internet use is not at the optimum capacity or the kind of hardware of computers and materials that people need is not even present. It is obvious to me that however long we've been in lockdown has meant that a lot of young people from very poor backgrounds are going to be regressing. Mm. They're going to be regressing and they are not going to be making the progress that they deserve, and actually the schools coming back is going to be a real important uh, help for them, notwithstanding all the safety issues that everybody is saying in relation to whether or not we're going back too soon. Mm. But then in terms of the employment world, it is obvious naturally that given the pandemic that we are going through, the issue of social mobility and recruitment-wise, isn't going to be high up in an employer's agenda, is it, given we are? And especially given now that we know about what's happening with the furlough scheme that is going to be pretty much weaned out and and stopped in October, what I think is going to happen is into the end of the, the year in that final quarter and into the new year, We are going to see unemployment rise in very stark numbers. And of course, then that means that people are going to be let go, people are going to be demoted, people are not going to be promoted, people's salaries are going to be hit. And we all know that those who are at the lowest end of the scale are going to be hit the hardest naturally, because that's what's going to happen unless there is a particular scheme that's there to, to protect them. So I don't think it's a good time for social mobility at all. Yeah. I think it's a really bad time for the early learning and the early years and the schooling years. And I think it's going to become a really dire time mm. for employment, employability, and the progress that we've made is going to be at jeopardy.
0: I mean, it, it, it certainly shone a light on so many issues and the inequalities that we've experienced in this country are just further highlighted, really, by this by this crisis. And um, do you have any? Op- are you optimistic about anything? How do we keep social mobility on the agenda then?
1: Um, I, I mean, I'm optimistic about one thing, which has emerged is is in the book. Interestingly, when I was writing it, you know, over two years ago now, but
2: mm.
1: one of the things I talked about was how we need to move away from giving so much kind of credence and cachet and prestige to the kind of professional jobs of accounting and doctor and lawyer and that kind of job that every parent wants their kid to and actually attach more weight and more importance to the kind of uh, uh, really critical jobs that are being done in our society that nobody really values, whether it's through money or or through their mindset. And I mm. specifically, in the book, I say care workers, I talk about nurses, I talk about, you know, the public sector workers. And it's really interesting to me during this crisis that we've seen a lot more people talk about them as key workers who are really highly valued rather than what we used to call them, which is sort of low-skilled workers. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's probably one of the most optimistic things. Now, the question then becomes, will that be maintained? Will that stay the course? Will that be something that we'll still be talking about in 18 months? I don't know. I have huge, huge admiration for people's resilience and people's abilities to hope. I just pray, and I really, really, really am praying for the fact that we need leaders and governments and people who can respond to that hope and that resilience and find ways through their policies to honor the real sacrifices that are being made by so many people out there because we deserve for our sacrifices to be met with uh, uh, policies that then elevate us all together.
0: Yeah. And I agree, I agree with you. And I think um, that's a, a good place to end, because I think, Hashi, your voice, also your story, um, your book, when you go into organisations, when you mentor people, when you go to schools, is, is important. And it's part of that puzzle as well, to keep these issues alive and in the forefront of people's minds and to value the contributions that they make so thank you so much for being a wonderful guest and sharing your story thank you
1: very much for having me jasmine
0: the hearing so thank you for listening to the hearing podcast if you enjoyed the podcast or if you've got any feedback, good or bad, or suggestions of guests or topics, then please do follow us on Twitter at Hearing podcast, or you can find me at Diverse Matters. Subscribe, rate us, comment. We'd love to hear from you. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash The Hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify,
2: or wherever you get your podcasts.